Trevor Halper, the team of Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. That is his usual weekly Monday appearance. Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. What follows, Dave Cameron analyzes, or at least endeavors to analyze, all baseball. This edition of uh, Fangraphs Audio, of course, occurs the Monday before the beginning of the World Series. Starting at around the uh, 18th or 19th minute of what follows, Dave Cameron discusses that World Series in some depth. He also, just before that moment, characterizes the conversation up till that point. So this is the podcast we're recording before the start of the World Series. Yeah. So far we have discussed Montreal. Yeah. Uh, smoked meat. Yeah. Hockey expansion. Okay, yes. Jason a... Hamill's potential contract. Uh-huh. And now the pasteurization of milk. So to reiterate... Anyone looking for serious analysis of the Baseball World Series, consider skipping ahead to, say, the 18th or 19th minute. Anyone who's interested in that but is also uh, willing to tolerate, in the meantime, a meandering conversation on a number of other topics, predominantly having to do with the fact that I am recording this introduction from Montreal, Canada, uh, just listen now. Start listening now, and what you're listening to is Fangraphs Audio, featuring Managing Editor Dave Cameron, a program in a conversation which begins right now. It's metric, uh, yeah. deci- metric decibels here. Uh, yeah, it should be okay. Should be pretty good. You did a good job uh, last week. Occasionally, you will sound like you're underwater, and that uh, happened zero times, I think, last week, or something close to zero times. Yeah, I think it's uh, probably just my finger slips over the the microphone of my phone. Okay. So. All right. I'll try not to do that. Um, here's a question. Uh, you may or may not know I'm calling you from Montreal. The I do know that because you told me that last I night. I told you that last night. Yeah. The, uh, I want to say, first of all, I've never been here, or at least not since uh, I've been aware of I think I might have come with my parents when I was very small. Uh, fan- just from 48 hours of having been here, fantastic place. Yeah, it's on my list of places to visit. Mm-hmm. I uh, I talked to Jonah Carey about it a couple of years ago, or maybe last year, when I was trying to plan vacation options, and uh, I was like, hey, I, I kind of want to uh, go to Montreal, maybe uh, thinking of like a trip in January, or February. And his advice to me was, do not go to Montreal in the winter. No. But I, I'm assuming you're you're there before it's winter, so it's probably beautiful. Yeah, it's nice. It's still it is cold. It is a little on the chilly side. Um, and I my I think it's actually a little bit a little bit colder than usual uh, for the season right now. It's been in the Sort of low to mid 40s the last couple of days, and uh, but if you have like a you know a jacket on, it's not noticeable really. Um, it's a great walking city, and uh, yeah. uh, there's a lot of uh, it's interesting. Uh, we're we're in a neighborhood known as Mile End, I believe. Yeah, because there's the the Mile End Deli in Brooklyn, right? Oh, interesting. I did not know that. Yeah, it's like a Jewish Montreal. Delhi named Mile End and it's yeah. fairly famous. Oh, okay, yeah. All right. Well, I did not know that. I thank you for telling me. And I can say that um, that there, yes, there is a in this neighborhood and around this neighborhood. There's a large uh, Portuguese population, a large Italian population, a large Jewish population, um, and and probably some other um, at least European or ethnic groups. I'm forgetting. 
but you could get excellent sandwiches. And they have a thing here that's famous. I'm guessing they have it at that Milan deli called smoked meat. Yeah. Um, that's that's their main thing that they sell. Yeah. It is very good. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's basically not that different than pastrami, right? I guess not, but it. Oh yeah. Okay, so that's very good. Um, it's interesting you say that. And this is, I'm guessing, a thing that happens with taste. Uh, my palate, my palate is not particularly good, but I will say that the part of it is the romance surrounding the idea of smoked meat. Right. Uh, the, the mythos around it. And so uh, that was uh, seductive for me. So, yeah, we went down to Schwartz's and you got some smoked meat sandwiches to go, or I got a smoked meat sandwich to go. My wife, who's a vegetarian, watched me do it. Yeah, she got a smoked cauliflower? No, she didn't get anything, no. Uh, no. She got a guy in a pickle. It's also, I would suggest uh, to you or to anyone else, to go with a wife who's fluent in French. That's going to help. That's you. probably helpful, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So can I go with yours? <laughs> yeah, you can rent. I don't know. I was going to say you could rent her out. That's not respectful <laughs> to anyone. Yeah. Not, <laughs> a good way for her to be your, your ex-wife. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's just a matter of time before she's my ex-wife. <laughs> That's how I tend to think of it. Yeah. Here's a question that I... um. So about um, when is what is the possibility that there will be any level of baseball here again? Do you have a sense of that in Montreal? Yeah, uh, like an actual team or Affili- just like people people getting together and playing in the streets? Yeah, affiliated baseball because so for example in Quebec City there's like a Can Am League team or or it was the Can Am League that might have merged with something else, um, but I'm talking affiliated baseball because it was here's my understanding it was. A pretty good. Uh, it, it was a, a pretty strong baseball city with a major league franchise for some time. Uh, Jeffrey Loria destroyed it. Uh, not he, won't, he didn't do it by himself. Not single handedly. Yeah, yeah. But it was. But they. Uh, it was able to support a major league team, and now there. And now there's not any sort of affiliated baseball in the city. So that's that seems like a big drop off. I would think that they might get a minor league team. Uh, I think the odds of them getting a major league team in the near future are pretty slim. Mainly because I think, you know, baseball's not really all that close to expanding again. Right. And the, what, a major league team hasn't moved cities and besides the whole Montreal debacle, uh, in a very long time. This is not something like, uh, you know, in the NFL we have franchises moving fairly regularly, mm-hmm. uh, or at least speculation about it. The NBA has seen teams move all the time. And this doesn't happen in baseball. And, uh, I think that's, Kind of how baseball likes it. So, my guess is we're going to be stuck with the 30, uh, you know, stuck with. We're going to continue with the status quo of the 30 major league franchises we have now for at least the next next 10 years. And then if baseball does decide to expand and get up to 32, I don't think Montreal would be at the top of the list. So, you know, they might be two expansions away, which is maybe I don't know, 30 or 40 years. But it seems like a likely candidate for like an international league team, right? Uh, yeah, considering the, the name of the team, is, uh, the name of the league is international, I would think you would want a team in Canada. <laughs> That's right, you would, you would want it again. And of course, uh, uh, there's some great, uh, baseball history in this. I mean, this, isn't this where Jackie Robinson made his affiliated debut? It, it is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's something on which to hang your, uh, Brooklyn Dodgers hat, if you wanted to, or some, any, yeah. Any I would think if Major League Baseball wanted to eventually return to Montreal, giving them a minor league team to kind of support and rekindle their love of baseball would be a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it would. It would uh, I would support it. I, I I don't know if you know about this. Am I allowed to live here? Can I? Am I how do I live here? Uh, I, I think you probably have to uh, 
uh, get a, a Canadian version of a green card. I don't know. Yeah. Do they, what do they call it? A white card or yeah. uh, something snowy, probably. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Nash, yeah, you would have card. to uh, maybe cease being as obnoxious as you are. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Become more, more friendly in order to fit in with the Canadian culture. Yeah. All right. Uh, but you already have, like, the – you like cheese, so. I do. I love cheese and meat. But, <clears throat> on the topic of expansion as well, am I to understand <laughs> – I, I learned this the other day um, – Hockey, hockey's getting like four more teams or two more teams. Is that real? I think that hockey is expanding. Huh. I didn't know that. Does it strike you as odd? Yes. Didn't they do that before and it didn't work? Yeah, I don't know. They put a whole bunch of teams in the American South and then they realized that people in the American South don't care about hockey. Yeah, they don't care about hockey, right. And then a lot of them moved, I think. The, wait, that's on the, uh, uh, that's that's wait. So they they built into the American South on the strength uh, on the argument, right? The logic that Phoenix, of course, is n- never is not a place where people are n- native hockey lovers. Right. But at the same time, if you have enough people in one town, then you'll get all you need is like what fifteen twenty thousand of them a night to come out and watch your hockey team. Yeah, but you need fifteen and twenty thousand rotating people. You don't just need fifteen thousand, twenty thousand, because they're not going to buy season tickets and go to all right. forty home games. You need a base of sixty or seventy thousand people in order to support that over a significant season. Right, but it, also with like uh, with business interests, right? I mean, if you have a like a hockey, if you have a hockey team, doesn't the fact that if you have like corporations in the area, doesn't that account for some of those tickets anyway? Because they people enjoy doing business. Or, or having, a, you know, the, like a luxury suite as an opportunity to, uh, you know, as like a bonus for clients or something like this? Yeah. I mean, I wonder, like, how the move towards television revenues has changed this calculation, right? Because attendance isn't the driver of whether a franchise can be viable anymore. Now it's how much of a, a television contract you can demand and what kind of rights fees you can extract from, you know, either a regional sports network or forming your own and charging advertising rates or whatever Maybe a city that doesn't have a big hockey base of uh, people who attend a game would have a large enough media reach in order to command a large TV deal that would sustain the franchise, even if five or ten thousand people showed up every day. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, a correction. If this was a hockey podcast. I would have answers. A, a correction to it. I, I think that. Um, oh wait, news broke Wednesday. This is from August twenty eighth. <laughs> there, never, never mind. possible six there, weeks ago. There are possibly teams going to Las Vegas, Seattle, Quebec City, and Toronto. Uh, those are, but then maybe there are arguments against that. It doesn't seem as though there's been an official announcement. Anyway, okay. so basically, you made up news that we discussed about a different sport. Honestly, I uh, I'll tell you how I came about it. Is uh, I am a house parent at a boarding school in New Hampshire, and one of the guys told me that that hockey expansion was happening, and I took that as a as an official report. Yeah, this is, um, you are not a viable source. Yes, like, yes, uh, You know what they say, like, sources close to the information? Yeah. Whatever, like, the source ninth removed from yeah. the information is, that's yeah, what you got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, here's another question I'm working on. We're, we're definitely, all right, we're, to, we're gonna get to the Royals, okay, at some point, and we're gonna get to you, um, becoming a champion of mediocrity, um, and also what that means for my future employment. I think it's good. Yeah, I think you should be celebrating this news. Yes, but uh, before that, I've been working on the, I'm working on today's uh, uh, crowdsourcing post, and yeah. 
here's the here's the thing. I came across well, one difficult name is Brett Anderson. I don't know how we're going to deal with that, but an even more difficult one is Chad Billingsley. Yeah. How 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 is anyone uh, supposed to project a, a salary or potential contract for Chad Billingsley who has not pitched at all? And in fact, uh, a number of the pitchers, um, a number higher than one of the pitchers on this this uh, that we're covering for the crowdsourcing, have not pitched in every one of the last three years. Yeah, I think you look at Josh Johnson, right? He's kind of the prototype for this pitcher, or the kind of end of career Brandon Webb and Rich Harden. Uh, teams have had this kind of bet before, where you have a previously talented pitcher who's had significant arm problems, missed a lot of time, multiple years, and the upside of uh, kind of getting those guys on the cheap on a one-year deal in order to try and land, uh, you know, maybe a... a bargain ace or, you know, 150 innings of quality performance uh, and then either flipping them at the deadline or making them a qualifying offer the next year holds a decent amount of appeal, especially to rebuilding teams who don't want to make long-term commitments. I think the Cubs have, you know, they did this with Scott Baker. Uh, this is kind of the model that a lot of these teams like to try and take. They say, we're not going to compete for Max Scherzer or John Lester, so maybe let's go take a gamble on some guy who used to be Max Scherzer or John Lester before he blew his arm out and uh, see if we can get him on a one-year deal at no money. Uh, I don't think it's the the worst plan in the world, but as we've seen with Josh Johnson and Scott Baker and some of these other examples, sometimes your arm is just too far gone, and teams end up wasting six, eight, ten, twelve million dollars. Um, you know, I think Billingsley and Anderson are going to fall into that mold probably, where they're going to get mm-hmm. close to ten million dollars, uh, or you know, at least with incentives and potential options and buyouts and that kind of thing. Um, because the talent is there and teams are willing to pay for it. Right. The uh, yeah, the Josh Johnson thing. But of course, Josh Johnson's only—he's uh, entering his age 31 season. He's he's somewhere right now. He's uh, recovering from Tommy John surgery. Yeah, he signed with the Padres an interesting contract last year that basically said if he made less than seven starts, which he ended up doing, they hold a team option for him for 2015 on four million dollars. Which you know you would think like, oh, Josh Johnson for four million bucks this is a no-brainer. Except for, no, no, Josh Johnson's arm is once again not healthy. Uh, and I think there's an argument to be made that he might not even be worth that anymore. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, I guess we'll see. Well, should I include him in the crowdsourcing then? I think it's uh, uh, maybe. Okay. Um, well, we'll talk uh, about it. Yeah, worth considering. Here's another question. Uh, Jason Hamill's another player who will be uh, available for crowdsourcing today in terms of his uh, 2015 contract. Yeah. Um. When the Cubs, Cubs signed him for six million, I think maybe there yeah. was some performance incentives. I don't, I don't know. It's not, not, not nothing substantial. Uh, what chance do you think they thought they would have him uh, after July? Five uh, percent. Oh, really? Right. So, so they signed him. They signed him almost exclusively to the idea that a he would give them solid innings for uh, four months, and then he would not be part of the team anymore. Yeah, I think they signed him thing, like there's some, you know, 1 in 15, 1 in 20, something like that, chance that everything clicks for them this year and they contend and they keep him and they're the Royals, basically, uh, who, you know, overperform their base runs expectation and sneak into the playoffs. And so in that scenario, they would have kept him all year. In the scenario in which, you know, they were a mediocre team and were sellers of the deadline, he would be a trade chip if he pitched well. And if he pitched poorly, they would just cut him. So I think that there is uh, basically almost no scenario where Jason Hamill was going to end the year with the Cubs. He was always signed to be trade bait. You know, it's interesting from the player's perspective in that case. That's actually a great contract to to sign 
um, if you're interested in winning, because I mean, not that the A's went very far in the playoffs. Of course, they they lost in sort of depressing fashion to to the Royals. Um, but if you're Jason Hamill, uh, you say, "Oh, well, I've got to sign a one-year contract." A team like the Cubs comes to you, and I assume you you, if you're Jason Hamill, have some idea that you'll be traded at the deadline. And if you're traded at the deadline, almost by definition, you're going to a, a competitive team. Which is something that uh, any you know, or the majority of athletes would uh, would embrace heartily. Yeah, I think I actually wrote about this a couple of years ago with Roy Oswalt, and I uh, wrote about uh, the theoretical demand that a player could make, and we have never seen this happen, and probably never will. But I believe I called it the must trade clause instead of the no trade clause, mm-hmm. where a player who might not be happy with the contract offers he's getting from contenders signs for a higher annual salary with a losing team. Uh, probably in a pitcher's park for the first couple months of the year, or in a park, you know, uh, suitable to their skills. If right. they're a hitter, obviously they'd go to Colorado or Baltimore or something. Uh, and then says, by some date, if the team is X number of games out of the contention, as expected, I must be traded to a contender or I'm released from my contract. And, you know, maybe this would be kind of a, an interesting way for players to get uh, a higher guaranteed salary and say they're going to finish the season on a contender and the trade-off is they spend three or four months playing for a team in which they know they're probably not going to have a long-term commitment. Right. Do, uh, with the, if, they, if, if everybody knew, um, if everybody knew that the, that player was going to be traded, uh, wouldn't that affect the trade value or no? Because they're no, still no. the same number of teams. There's, there's still bidders, right? So this is the thing is like people assume that trade value comes from the, the amount of leverage the buyer has. It's not true. It's the amount of leverage the seller has. So like if you go to the grocery store, they're making it very obvious that they want to sell you milk. They put, <laughs> they put an expiration date on it and everything. They're like, we're going to throw this milk out in seven days if you don't buy it. This is going in the trash. You still buy the milk because you value what they're selling at the price they're selling at it. And if you don't buy it, someone else will. So, All right. Well, you uh, need because you want cereal. And what yeah, are you exactly. going to put in your cereal? You, you, you need to, yeah, you don't want to put water on your Cheerios. So you buy milk with an expiration date right on it. Uh, I think as long as you had a the player was overperforming his contract and the asking price wasn't absurd, you would have more than one team interested. And whenever you have more than one team interested, you have a bidding war, and now all of a sudden the player has trade value. Right. I would I would like to say I recently bought some Stonyfield Farm uh, ultra pasteur ultra pasteurized whole milk, and it lasted it lasted a disturbingly long time. <laughs> have you ever Probably. had ultra ultra pasteurized milk? I, I have not. I'm not sure how, I mean, pasteurization is like super high heat for a short period of time, I believe. Yeah. I don't, I mean, uh, what, like is ultra pasteurization like putting it in a nuclear reactor for 10 seconds? I don't know. If, if anyone has any insight into this, I mean, uh, this is, uh, you, one could just Google this, but I would like to hear a brief explanation of the process of ultra pasteurization relative to just, uh, what uh, normal regular old pasteurization. regular old pasteurization it's been going on from for all can I years. can I make a point yeah so this is the podcast we're recording before the start of the World Series yeah so far we have discussed Montreal yeah uh, smoked meat yeah hockey expansion okay yes Jason <laughs> Hamill's potential contract uh-huh. and now the pasteurization of milk right so you're suggesting <laughs> maybe we move on let's go on to your argument on behalf of mediocrity. Okay. Because that's that does, at least tangentially related to it one does, of the teams well, in the World Series. It yeah. discusses how they got there, right? Yeah, because right. we have a team in the Kansas City Royals, which, by your own admission, um, 
even up till what July of this year, uh, uh, you were not entirely impressed um, by the method um, with which they conducted their uh, what roster management, etc. Uh, you suggested they should trade. Uh, it was time to trade James Shields. Did you say that, Dave Garrett? I, I did. Yeah. You, you, and now they are in the World Series after after having not lost a single playoff game. Yeah. Uh, no, they haven't lost a playoff game since 1985, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, so, um, what it what has it taught you? No, what has it taught you, Dave? I mean, it teaches you that mediocrity is ought to be the goal. Uh, no. I would say mediocrity or sustained decency is maybe a, a more politically correct word for it, mm-hmm. uh, is a more admirable goal than it used to be. So I think, uh, if there was, you know, so I'll say there's two lessons here. One lesson is that we shouldn't draw lessons from eight games. And no mm-hmm. matter how dominant those eight games are, like there's a really strong chance that this Royals run never happens, uh, if Derek Norris, you know, doesn't have to go into the game for Giovanni Soto, Maybe they don't steal a whole bunch of bases against the A's late in the game, and maybe the A's win the wild card. Or if Bob, if Bob Melvin uh, replaces John Lester yeah, at, right, a, at exactly. a reasonable time. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that you know were not predictable, that could not have been anticipated, that could have easily led to the Royals uh, uh, getting eliminated in the wild card game. That we should not say we're going to rewrite everything we know about baseball and and take a introspective deep dive into our theories. Because the Royals won eight straight games in October mm-hmm. when they almost lost the first one, uh, which would have ended the, you know, made right. the other seven not happen. Right. I do think, uh, if we're challenged to think about kind of the, our own process or my own process and what we think about what good roster management strategies are, uh, not just because the Royals are in the World Series, I do think there's, uh, there a, a more recent data point of multiple data points to suggest that you don't need to be a 90-win team anymore in order to be successful. Uh, Major League Baseball structurally changed the playoff system in order to devalue the fourth-place finish, um, which I think makes it less uh, of a a good idea to try and build uh, a behemoth because now there's a a worse safety net for you if you don't win your division. So, uh, you, you know, the wild card... The second wild card makes it easier for mediocre teams to make the playoffs. It makes it harder for good teams to make what we kind of consider the real playoffs, the division series and the league championship series and the world series. Uh, because now if you qualify for the wild card because some other team just beats you out in your division, you have to play an extra 50-50 coin toss game essentially in order to advance to the rest of the postseason. So I think, um, the, the, you know, the expansion of the playoffs, uh, and the addition of the second wild card has changed some of the incentives uh, for what kind of roster you should want to build. You know, maybe a few years ago there was a rational case to be saying, you know, maybe the target for every team should be 93 or 94 wins. That would give you a really good chance of winning your division uh, and, you know, give you a, a strong chance to, to play in the postseason. Um, now, maybe under this current system, the target goal should be 90 wins or 91 wins or maybe even 89 wins, which will uh, give you a shot at getting into one of these wild card games. And because you're, you know, moving four or five wins off of your present value, you can probably have uh, a better year the next year where you're not having to, you know, play as much for just this one season. You're not kind of going all in in some seasons and then rebuilding the next. You're just sustaining repetitive, com- 
competitiveness. That's a terrible use of <laughs> words together. Uh, re- re- repeated it's okay, you're a professional writer, I understand. Yeah, yeah, that was awful. <laughs> uh, I think in having kind of more shots at the apple uh, might make more sense if the value of kind of the best shot has been reduced. And I think that's kind of the situation we're in is being the best team in baseball isn't worth what it used to be. And being an okay team is worth more than it used to be. So, all right. So uh, now on the one hand, so we might have this dichotomy, right? Either being attempting to be very good for a short amount of time or uh, trying to be decent for a longer period of time. Is that a, is that a real, like in, in practice, is that a, is that a choice the teams make or is it, is it merely a question of, you know, how players in your system develop, for example? I mean, is that, isn't that going to determine some of these factors? So I don't think you can choose entirely to your exact win total in every given year. But I do think, uh, if you are a, a very good team, you can choose how, how close to the floor you push the pedal, right? Like, uh, let's use the Washington Nationals. I think we're a pretty good example of a very good team, probably going to be a very good team again next year. They don't have very many holes. Uh, they can look at their team and say, okay, uh, we have Jordan Zimmerman for one more year. We have Ian Desmond for one more year. We have Doug Fister for one more year. Uh, and then we have some big arbitration cases coming with Harper and Strasburg and uh, Wilson Ramos. And, you know, we've got some expensive guys coming. There's almost no way we can keep this core together, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we have one more run with this team. Uh, so we can choose to push in and say 2015 is our last shot with this group. We're going to try and win, which under the older model is probably what they would have done or what they should have done is – push as many chips in as you can while you have these guys under control and then figure out, you know, maybe in 2016, you take a little bit of a step back, you rebuild, you maybe trade Strasburg, you you kind of build around your next core of guys and try and take another shot at it. Or under this new model, you might say, okay, I think I'm a 92 or 93 win team in 2015. And I don't know that I need to be because the rest of my division is pretty weak and I can probably get one of the two wild card spots with 88 or 89 wins. So maybe I trade Jordan Zimmerman or Doug Fister, and I get a younger player who will still be on the team in 2016, 2017, and I move some value from next year into the future. And instead of having a 93-win team and then an 84-win team, I have an 88-win team twice. Under the old model, where you needed to win your division or, you know, uh, be the first wild card in order to get into the postseason, um, maybe it, was be, it would be better to have a 93-win team followed by an 84-win team under this model, it's maybe better to be in the high 80s twice in a row. So, oh, so do, you, do you have a sense of uh, how they'll conduct themselves during this offseason? I don't. I think this is. I think the. I'm not sure that anyone knows. Like, I think we're, you know, in year two now of the second wild card system, and teams are still trying to figure out kind of the targets and what they should do and how they should operate under this uh, principle. I do think, as we see. You know the Royals and the Giants, two wild card teams in the in the in the World Series. We at least you know dealing with an end of two years, obviously, uh, are maybe realizing the single game wild card isn't such a huge detriment to eventual World Series winner as we had originally thought. Where you know I think uh, the design was supposed to be okay. Well, if you have to get to this playoff and you have to play an extra game. Obviously, we're hurting your odds just from having forcing you to play another elimination game, but we're also causing you to burn one of your best starting pitchers, and you're not getting as much rest. And then, you know, the Royals burn their best starter and win seven consecutive games after that. The Giants burn their best starter and go six and one after that, or seven and one after that. Uh, it, just, it seems to not actually be a, a massive downturn or a massive harm. Um, 
So maybe you say, you know, you certainly want to win your division and and not have to play in the wild card game if you don't want to, but maybe what the A's did this year where they pushed in with Addison Russell in order to get Jeff Samarzja in order to really try and make a run this year. Obviously, they still have Samarzja for next year, um, but maybe that's less optimal than it used to be versus just maintaining your stock of talent for a longer period of time. Yeah. Well, what a, a remarkable thing about these playoffs has been the fact that the Dodgers had uh, Clayton Kershaw. Yeah. And Clayton Kershaw uh, made two starts and allowed so many runs. He allowed a lot of them, yeah. Yeah, it, it's it, – because you just – you figure – you go into a game like that and you say – Oh man, it's so I'm so glad we have Clayton Kershaw pitching. He never allows runs, and then um, he allowed a bunch of them. But uh, miraculously too, uh, he by all um, by all indications he shouldn't have allowed that many runs if you just look at his peripheral numbers. Right, he struggled with men on base basically. Which is that a thing that Clayton Kershaw has done before? I mean, more no. above and beyond what other players have done. No, Kershaw is generally one who outpitches his peripherals. Yeah, right. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think this is. The randomness of the baseball postseason is, you know, Matt Adams, who's terrible against left-handers, hits a home run off Clayton Kershaw, who's the best left-handed pitcher in baseball, uh, best pitcher in baseball, period. Uh, that was, you know, one of the most unexpected outcomes you could possibly imagine. Did, did, did the, did the James Shields trade, the James Shields trade, did that really do anything for the Royals? I mean, would they still, uh, what are the chances they'd still be here if they hadn't done that trade? So it, it did, but not necessarily because of James Shields, right? So I think this is kind of the the interesting part of analyzing this trade, is the James Shields trade worked almost entirely because, and I say worked in the sense of, like, they got more value than they gave up over this two-year window. We'll see about the future. Uh, because Wade Davis turned into a ridiculously dominant relief pitcher. He was very good in his last year in Tampa Bay out of the bullpen, but he wasn't this good. And the Royals were so impressed with his bullpen work that they tried to turn him back into a starter, and that failed miserably. Mm -hmm. This is one of those things where when you're talking about process versus results, I think we can't really say that the Royals knew that in trading for James Shields, they were also going to get this crazy reliever who was uh, insanely good, and this was part of the plan, in that Davis didn't project to be this good, and they didn't try and use him this way. Uh, I think if you take Wade Davis out of the deal, this is a clear loss for Tampa Bay, even with Shields pitching well and Myers having a, a uh, injury-prone second season where he didn't play very much and he didn't play very well when he was on the field uh, because the marginal gap between Shields and Jake Odorizzi, uh, when you include the payroll factor and the fact that they could have signed a starter uh, to um, help their team in 2013 when Odorizzi was still in the minors for you know the 10 or $12 million that Shields is making, uh, isn't actually that large. But Davis kind of pushes the the envelope in the Royals' advantage the last couple of years because for whatever, five or six million dollars, whatever he made this year, uh, he would have returned a, a tremendous amount of value with his relief pitching, especially in the postseason. Um, so the combination of Shields and Davis, certainly more valuable to the 2014 Royals than Myers and uh, Odorizzi would have been, uh, but mostly because Davis was crazy good out of the bullpen in a way that I don't think anyone could have seen coming. Right, yeah, he well, he was worth, uh, if you calculated by uh, FIP-based war, he was worth uh, a little over three wins, Yeah, which is more than, uh, for example, uh, I mean, well, it's more than a lot of <laughs> more than a lot of people. Uh, he was about as good this year as Will Meyer was last year, which, you know, I don't think you expected, oh, yeah, we'll get, you know, uh, a year of Wade Davis out of the bullpen that equates to this, you know, top five, hitting prospect uh, in all of baseball. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, he was worth more 
for example, than um, uh, than Tyson Ross, who had a fantastic season right. uh, with with Padres. He was worth more than his um, than Jordano Ventura. Yeah, who throws was number two starter? Right, who throws who throws very hard as a starter? Uh, yeah, and I, I that's not something you necessarily. Um, I've heard it suggested um, before, maybe just once or twice. I, it's hard to say how many times that uh, it is difficult, nigh impossible to predict baseball. Uh, yeah, very very hard. You've heard it suggested anyway. Uh, yeah, this might be an example. Uh, the team whom. The Royals are playing is the San Francisco Giants. They've been in the World Series before. Uh, is this just uh, the Giants being the Giants more even continue? They're continuing to be the Giants. Yeah, I mean, so this Giants team isn't the same as other Giants teams. I think that's, I mean, so it's the same organization, mm-hmm. and Buster Posey is still very good. But this Giants team is different in that their pitching is actually not very good. I mean, mm-hmm. I think when we think of the contending teams of the past few years, it was you know Lincecum when he was good and Matt Cain and. Uh, you know, they, they had very good pitching. Bumgarner, uh, has been around for a while, but he wasn't their ace, uh, until this year. Um, I think, you know, when you look at Jake PV and Tim Hudson and Ryan Vogelsong, it's the weakest rotation after Bumgarner of any contender in baseball, uh, or of any of the postseason teams, except for maybe the Orioles. Um, but right, it should you know, be noted that, it, uh, at least again, according to Fitbase War, the Giants had the third worst rotation in the major leagues. Or third, right. third worst pitching staff. Some of that is because Lincecum was awful and allowed to pitch, and he's been replaced by PV, who's better. Uh, so you wouldn't say that their current group would expect it to be right. perform in that same way. But it's not a good pitching staff, especially mm-hmm. after Bumgarner. Or it's not a good rotation after Bumgarner. Uh, but their offense is actually quite good, which is not necessarily what you'd expect when you look at, you know, uh, this group of players. But I think they've done a good job uh, historically of not having too many glaring weak holes. So, you know, Brandon Crawford isn't the uh, automatic out with no power that he used to be. Uh, Gregor Blanco's a really interesting uh, kind of undervalued uh, role player, not as good as Angel Pagan, but, a you know, a nice little role player. Hunter Pence has continued to be uh, surprisingly good, <laughs> uh, maybe one of the top 10 or 15 players in the National League this year. Uh, on a contract that looked crazy when they signed it, or at least looked like a, a pretty significant overpay, and Pence has more than justified the cost. Uh, you know, they have a whole left field, essentially, because of Pagan's injury, where Travis Ishikawa is uh, experimenting out there, and we, we saw some uh, adventurous routes in the outfield from him in the St. Louis series. But the, uh, you know, besides that one hole, which is only exists because of an injury, uh, the Giants have done a good job of kind of avoiding these these pits of despair. So even though that, you know, they might only have a couple of star level players, uh, in, you know, Posey and Bumgarner uh, and Pence performing like one, uh, they're still a pretty good team because they avoid kind of the, the, you know, negative value guys who drag you down. Right. Well, and uh, of course, Jeff Sullivan wrote about this last week, I yeah, think. Yeah, with the Orioles. Yeah. yeah, Dan Duquette and Avoiding the Awful was the name of that particular piece. Right. And this is revisiting a, a um, an idea that we've that you and I have discussed on the podcast, and uh, but you know, looking at it through at least through the uh, through the prism of the of the Baltimore Orioles roster, it really is striking if you look just at the negative war created on a team. And Sullivan does this. He you know he's you can look at a table, the the war over the last two years, the negative war. The teams at the top of that list, which is to say, teams that have rostered players who've avoided awful seasons. Those are typically the best teams. Yeah. 
The so, depth matters. And I, I'm curious. I'm curious if you just if, if you go into a season or as a GM, if your objective is to avoid uh, avoid below replacement level seasons, could you could you especially in this what you're suggesting is new landscape of um, in which we uh, want to embrace mediocrity? Is, is that a good strategy? I think it's a cost-effective strategy. So it's probably not the best strategy if you're the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Red Sox and you have $200 million to spend. At that point, it would be more efficient to allocate some of that money to get some really premium players. If you're the Royals or even the Giants, who, you know, they spent $130 million this year, uh, which is above average, but, you know, they're not the, you know, they're not in the top tier of spending. Or the Cardinals or some of these teams, uh, it's probably a more efficient way of spending to make sure you have average or better players at every spot on the field than to try and allocate, you know, a seven, eight, nine year deal to a star player who's a four or five win guy and make up for it by having a zero win player next to him or some guy with enough variance where you could easily expect a zero win outcome. Uh, I think, you know, spreading the money around is probably a more cost effective way, uh, versus pursuing a start and scrub strategy. Yeah, the uh, it's funny that you mentioned that it's a cost-effective strategy, and that it's one that the Dodgers ought to avoid. Meanwhile, they have hired Andrew Friedman as their—I uh, don't know. Do they call him a GM? Is that the, is that his title? He's the president of baseball operations. Right, but it's effectively the GM, right? No, he's going to hire a GM. Uh, probably going to be Josh Burns, according to rumors. Oh God, Josh uh, Burns. Yeah, Josh Burns More is probably going to be his GMs. Uh, all right, Josh Burns is taking a tour of the National League West. <laughs> he's already done San Diego and Arizona. Now he's going to LA. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I think the kind of the current structure is that you have two GMs or two GM type people, uh, and one of whom is the boss of the other. Uh, the GM is now the low man on the totem pole and the president of baseball ops or director of baseball whatever Tony Russo's title is. Uh, he has some uh, c- commander of baseball officials or something <laughs> something, so, something like that. Uh, he's the guy actually in charge, and the GM is now the number two. Is it High Prince? Was it High Prince? Yeah, right. He's, the, uh, he's sending Nigerian <laughs> chain, chain mails asking for money for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Um, and, uh, but, but, of course, the, the, the quality that Freeman offers any team, but in this particular case the Dodgers, is not necessarily – that he will be able, it's, you know, to say, oh, well, what could Andrew Freeman do with this huge payroll? Which he will obviously have a huge payroll, but it's the point is that the reason the Dodgers like him in theory is that he can extract more wins from less money. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think the Dodgers are still going to probably be the highest spender next year because it's going to be very hard for them to cut payroll uh, dramatically and still feel the team. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, um, so I think they're still going to be over $200 million next year. But I wouldn't be surprised at all if their their hiring of Friedman was a a, t- a ticket into the future of them trying to win at or close to the luxury tax instead of being forty, fifty, sixty million dollars over the luxury tax, uh, and you know paying up to twenty or thirty million dollars in taxes uh, for that overage so that they can have Brandon League and Chris Perez and Brian Wilson and some of these ridiculously overpaid relievers, which were you know pretty obviously bad signings when they occurred. Uh, I think if you're you know the Guggenheim Group, and you've you know made your money in hedge funds and on Wall Street, you're probably interested in maximizing your return on investment uh, rather than just outspending everybody. How do how do I maximize my uh, ROI, Dave Cameron? Um, do I have to make well, an I first? <laughs> yeah, you probably have to have more than a dollar. Okay. Uh, so uh, you know, collect a few pennies, uh, and then maybe 
learn to get really good at like three card Monty yeah. or some kind of uh, scam where you can rip rip other people off. That might be a good way for for you to maximize your own personal investment. I gotta talk to Appleman about this too. Maybe maybe he'll help me out. Yeah, maybe. I don't think he's good at three card Monty. He doesn't strike me as a a yeah. card scammer. Do you know that uh, not next week, but the week after, I'm going to be going to Phoenix, Arizona. For Arizona fun? Fall League. Oh, okay. I'm going to uh, bother Kylie McDaniel while we're both there, and he's going to teach me about how to understand prospects better. That'll be fun. Yeah. Are, you, are, are you going to uh, – uh, well, never mind. I will a- a- end that question before I ask it. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll talk yeah. about it. How about off air? Or I, just, I, will, I have let wisdom overcome me. And uh, Oh, you got to say something rude? Uh, no. I was going to say something silly. All right, well, we'll get that in a second. Uh, but in the, in the meantime, you've absolutely fulfilled your obligations. Thank you very much, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. That's uh, Dave Cameron, managing editor of uh, Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stooley. It's been I, I a mediocre edition, <laughs> which is not a bad thing, it turns out, of, uh, of Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.